chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. And if you have a church Bible, it's on page 910. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptised by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptised, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than what you have been authorised. Some soldiers also questioned him. What should we do? He said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. When all the people were baptised, Jesus also was baptised. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Thanks Heidi. Uh, Keep your Bibles open to uh, Luke chapter 3. I'm going to pray for us and then we can jump in. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, may what I say and what we hear be glorifying to you, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Well, in 1927, Professor Thomas Parnell started what the Guinness Book of Records 
sees as the longest running scientific experiment of all time. Uh, Parnell heated up a sample of pitch, he poured it into a funnel and then he let it settle for three years and then he broke off the bottom of the funnel uh, and he waited. And in the 97 years since he started this experiment, a total of nine drops of pitch have fallen uh, from the funnel. Uh, you can even go on, online to a live stream and you can wait for drop number 10 if you'd like to. No one has ever actually seen one of the drops, uh, but they drop. Uh, Parnell's intention was to teach that everyday materials can have some uh, extraordinary characteristics. Uh, but as I read about this this week, it also made me think of where we're at at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, that just because something appears to be coming along slowly doesn't make the outcome any less inevitable. That some unstoppable, inevitable things move along slowly, uh, but you can guarantee that they are coming. Uh, John the Baptist comes to prepare the people who have been waiting. Uh, God's story has run throughout the Old Testament. They've been waiting for a great messianic character. They've been waiting patiently for this person to come. But God is bringing about his purposes, maybe slowly from their perspective, but inevitably. And so today we're going to look at three things that John challenges his listeners with uh, as they wait and as they prepare. And then there's a fourth, which is really a challenge to him as well as his listeners. Uh, so, of course, I can't help myself. They all start with R. Uh, are they ready for what is about to come? Uh, are they actually uh, repentant? Are they actually responding in our lives in that repentance? And then finally, for John and for them and for us, uh, are we expectant of rebirth as Christians? Well, chapter 3 begins in a very Lucan uh, style. Luke is a guy that wants to nail things down into history. And so you can see here in those first couple of verses just how many details he gives you. Uh, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, uh, Pontius Pilate's in power. There's Herod, who's a, a tetrarch, but he also has his brother Philip, who's another te tetrarch in uh, Trachonitis, and Lysanias is working in Abilene. There's uh, Annas and Caiaphas, who are priests. Uh, there are all of these people... Uh, who are people of power and authority and influence, and they are all in this region. In, meanwhile, in chapter 1, we're introduced to John, a backwater kid growing up in the uh, wilderness, strong in the spirit, but he's been waiting for this moment, and now he comes to a, an area of the Jordan. Luke is clear that there are Caesars and kings and rulers and priests and people who have all of those external experiences of power, the kind of people who you might expect to come with authority and strength. But God is at work in the life of a bug-eating, itchy-shirt-wearing preacher in the Israel equivalent of the back of Burke. And so the response is surprising. You might expect people to flock to these positions of power, but instead they flock to the wilderness and they flock to John, giving a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke looks around him at all the powerful leaders who will come and go, but he understands that what John is doing is really powerful because he sees it in the bigger picture. John isn't just some bloke who's ended up uh, by a river but he is a bloke who has been spoken about 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough ways will smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. John's readers would have known exactly what John is talking about. Uh, if you're in a position of power, uh, having straight roads is a, a way of talking about a, a, a triumphal entry. And it was the kind of thing that the Romans were known for. And so they would have understood that. Just think about the fact we live in Orange and so as you're driving home today, you'll play dodge the pothole. Uh, but the Romans made roads that were beautiful and straight and flat throughout the whole of their empire and many of them are still there today 2,000 years later. But for John and his listeners, the idea of God preparing a way in the wilderness was just not something that would uh, uh, connect with them because of, of the Roman reality, but also it's the story of God and his love for his people. As Israel escapes the tyrannical hand of the Egyptians, God makes their path straight as they walk through the Red Sea. Forty years later, when Joshua enters the Promised Land, God does the same and the nation of Israel walks through the Jordan River. And now they find themselves at the same river, listening to John as he declares that God's deliverer, his forever deliverer, is coming that everyone is going to see the salvation of God. Like pitch running through a funnel, it may not happen as quickly as they would have liked, but John is clear that it is inevitable, that it is unstoppable. But are they actually ready for it? Well, Scott talked a little bit earlier about his experience of school. I want to talk about one of my experiences of school. And I was the kind of student that Scott would have hated. Uh, I, I was the kind of student who can tell you about all of the different punishments they had at the school I went to because I experienced almost all of them. Uh, one of them, it was just below a Friday detention, but bigger than uh, picking up rubbish at, at recess, was a thing called lines. If you were given lines, what would happen is you'd have to go during lunchtime or after school, and there was a hallway like this one, and on the hallway uh, uh, was a piece of paper with a whole bunch of uh, complicated words and you had to sit there and write out the lines of these complicated words and then if you've been extra naughty you also had to look up their definitions. Uh, so uh, one day in uh, year eight uh, I got in trouble and so my teacher said you have to write some lines and I said fair enough uh, but I had a spark of genius as I was writing out those lines that afternoon. It's just as easy to do it twice as it is once and so I would write a spare set of lines that I could keep in my wallet and I could have in the future if I needed it. Uh, it was a year and a bit later and the moment came. It was in commerce in uh, year 10. I think I'd forgotten to do homework or something like that. And my teacher said, you're going to have to fill out uh, page one of lines as a punishment for that. And I said, oh, wait a second, sir. And I, I got up, I walked down to the front, I opened my wallet and I slapped it down in front of him <laughs> triumphantly. And my teacher looked down, uh, he looked at me, and he said, actually, why don't you keep those? Maybe I'll just make it a Friday detention instead. <laughs> uh, I had missed the very point. Uh, the punishment was supposed to provide me an opportunity to reflect and repent and actually amend my behavior. I had failed to do something I ought to have done, and therefore I was supposed to consider that while I did a punishment. Instead, I thought I could trade in a piece of paper I'd prepared earlier and somehow that would make everything even and fair. The crowds had come out to John 
He was preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, but that doesn't appear to be what they were looking for. Luke identifies this as uh, John speaks to the crowd. He says to the crowds who came out to be baptized, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. The axe is ready at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Clearly, some, if not many, of the people who had arrived out there at the Jordan had their version of lines in their back pocket. We're the people of Abraham. We're part of God's chosen people. We've fulfilled our sacrificial obligations at the temple. And so maybe if I take part in this ceremonial activity, then I'll be absolved of my sins. I'll be free and clear. If I just do another thing, I'll get more stuff. They're all about the forgiveness of sins, the outcome that they're hoping for. But there appears to be none of the repentance, none of the reflection, none of the opportunity for them to actually consider what it is to come out and reconnect with God. It's the kind of cynicism that I was absolutely guilty of as a teenager as I slapped down the lines in front of my teacher. And it can be the kind of cynicism that we can be guilty of sometimes when it comes to our Christian faith. Can I get forgiveness without repentance if I tick a box rather than come to the Lord? Can I commit to reading the Psalms Uh, Like Sam said, she was, uh, not because I want to draw nearer to God and understand his word, but because I can say, if I've read my Bible every day, then I've done something to earn my own relationship with God. Are there Christian things I can do rather than actually drawing nearer to an actual relationship, which means being vulnerable and clear and open about my own imperfections and my need of a saviour? If God was the one who made the universe, he could just raise up new children from stones. He doesn't need uh, people who just go through the motions but aren't actually invested in the person of God. The tree that is God's people could be cut down if it's not fruitful, if it's not pursuing a living relationship with him. And so John says it's great uh, that you're ready, that if you've come out, but you also need to be people who are repentant. Interestingly, Luke records three different people groups who respond to what he's saying here. Uh, You have the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers. Uh, To the crowds, they ask, well, what should we do? And Jesus says, well, if you've got two shirts, you should share one of them with someone else. And if you've got food, you should share. Uh, The tax collectors ask the same question. And he says, well, don't take more than you've been authorized. And finally, the soldiers say, well, what about us? Uh, And he says to them, well, uh, don't take things by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Uh, So what's the point? Uh, Did John have a particular bone to pick with certain job descriptions and that's why we find out about them? Is this the moment where you go, I'm glad I'm a a tax accountant, which is technically different to a tax collector, so I don't have to worry about this? Uh, Well, no, there are uh, three things I want to draw from this. Uh, Firstly, there's a broad principle that I think we often forget about, and that is uh, we imagine that every bit of the Bible has been set up for a particular purpose. And I think that is true, But sometimes we forget that as it first washes over us, that we read the Bible as things that actually happened. That is, uh, Luke records this with purpose and intention, but he also records this because this is an actual conversation that happened in the first century. 
Luke isn't crafting a book to achieve his purposes. He's pointing to God's purposes by talking about real, actual things. Uh, Secondly, as we read this, we can think not only uh, what is Luke uh, sort of aiming at, but also what is it that Luke doesn't say. What he doesn't say is, tax collectors, you are working for the enemy. You're working for Rome. Surely you should dump your job and you should come back and do something holy. I don't know, maybe you can uh, work in the temple. Uh, The soldiers, you're most likely the people who are protecting the tax collectors. You're even worse. You should dump that and uh, maybe you could see if you could uh, uh, get some uh, other more holy job. But no, what he doesn't say, he doesn't tell them that they need to leave their jobs and do something uh, that is somehow holier. Instead, the imminent of the uh, arrival of the Messiah is here. And instead, he calls them to take their ordinary lives and seek to actually honour God with what they do. Live an ordinary life in such a way that it reflects the relationship they have with an extraordinary God. Uh, Don't stop being a a tax collector or a soldier. Uh, Just be a godly tax collector or soldier. The same principle applies to John's advice to the crowds. Uh, If we know the God of salvation is coming and we know that he is for us and that he cares for us, then that's something actually that shapes our everyday lives. We're generous with the things that we have and the opportunities we've been given, uh, that we see that we want to live our ordinary lives in a way that reflects our love of the extraordinary God. Uh, By way of uh, comparison, you have Harold Camping. Uh, He was around in the early 20s and he was famous because in his uh, radio network, uh, he predicted that the rapture was going to occur on May 21st, 2011, and that on October 21st, 2011, it was going to be the end of the universe. Uh, The response for many who listened to the radio network was to sell their houses and sell their belongings, to stop everything they did. None of that really mattered anymore. All they wanted to do was to focus on these two dates. And those dates, well, they came, but Harold Camping's prophecies never did. Uh, John's response, on the other hand, don't be a cynical people who come out for a baptism as if it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. But instead... Uh, live our everyday lives in a way that reflects being part of God's family in living the way he calls us to. Uh, even if we think a great thing is coming in the future, uh, we live in reflection of that, but we do that by being God's people right now in the here and now, uh, not changing, not selling everything, not stopping everything, but honouring God with what we have and what we do. Uh, whether you're a, a tax collector or a soldier, a diesel mechanic, a primary school teacher, a clinical psychologist or a chiropractor, we're all called to take our everyday lives and live it in light of the fact that we've been called into a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. They wonder if they need to respond in a special way, but God challenges them to honour in the everyday. We see the struggle for the crowds because we're told that next uh, they wonder, well, clearly John is speaking with authority He has to be the one that we're waiting for. Verse 15, all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. He's bold, he's prophetic, he tells it like it is. Maybe he's the next David. He's a pretty charismatic character. But then John really shifts their expectations. Read again with me in verse 16. I baptise you with water, 
but the one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. I often mow my lawns on a Saturday morning. It only takes about an hour in total. But by the end of it, particularly at this time of the year, it's a little bit humid. I feel stuffy and sweaty. I think I've got the rest of the day to go ahead, so I'm going to have a shower so I can have a fresh start. I don't want to be carrying that sweatiness with me the whole day. But in the first century, they had a lot less access to water. They didn't have showers in their houses. In the first century, it was almost 1,900 years before deodorant was invented. I looked that up this week as well. <laughs> uh, you can understand why baptism for them was such a powerful symbol. It was a washing off of all of the dirt and the mess and the grime that came with life. And you came out of the water and there was a sense that you were fresh and clean and reborn after that. No wonder people flocked with this opportunity to have this a great symbol of the fact that they wanted to turn around and they wanted to start again. But it makes it even more powerful then when John comments, saying that there is one who is coming who is so great uh, that he, the one who has been baptizing the masses, isn't even worthy of doing the stinkiest of the jobs, which is undoing his uh, the sandals of Jesus, uh, uh, undoing the straps of Jesus' sandals. If they had expectations of John, uh, then John makes clear his expectations of who Jesus is, that he'll come to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If John is a great man, then the one who is to come is infinitely greater. John is anticipated, as we saw earlier in, uh, uh, in Isaiah 40, but here John points to a deeper promise of God, a greater anticipation you could turn to four chapters later in Isaiah. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. Or famously in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and, uh, uh, and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Or again in Joel, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all humanity, says God. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. God has promised more than just a new start. God has promised uh, that his spirit is going to dwell in his people. And now this is what John speaks of, uh, that somebody is coming, uh, the Messiah is coming, and the Messiah is going to bring this spirit. If Israel, some of the cynical Israel, had been hoping for a little bit of God's favour that they could earn by doing something, uh, 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 an act of holiness, what we see is the promise of something far greater, not only God's favour, but God's presence, not only in the Messiah that is coming, but in the spirit that he is bringing for his people. John baptised with water, a great symbol of rebirth, a new hope, a fresh start. But after him comes a person who's going to baptize with the, the spirit and fire. 
Of course, different people have guessed what it means uh, when it talks about Jesus baptizing with fire. Uh, Some have wondered, is it talking about the tongues of fire that appear above the heads of the apostles when they start uh, start speaking in tongues in Acts? Is it a matter of uh, purifying when uh, we become Christians, God slowly purifies off us and burns off those little little things that are, are sins in our lives that we get entangled in? Uh, These are are good ideas to entertain. They're great ideas to think about. Uh, But I think the following verse makes things clearer for us. Luke uh, uh, 3.17. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. John the Baptist has been hard on these people who have come into the wilderness trusting in their ancestry They think that a dip in the river is going to give them forgiveness without the need for real repentance. And his promise of the greater one coming after him also comes with a warning. John points out that Jesus will test everyone in the final judgment, that those who put their trust in something else that doesn't last are who I am, my family background, the the good deeds that I think have earned things for me, that these things will be burned up like chaff. John John might judge them on an obviously cynical attitude, uh, but Jesus is the one who will come and judge their and our hearts. And yet even with this sober warning, this moment as John explains to them that Christ is going to judge us at at our root and our core, that he sees our hearts and he knows who we are, that even in the midst of this, Luke is clear, verse 18, that along with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the... Good news to the people. And here is where we see one of the most vital truths that we can find in the Christian gospel. No matter how uncomfortable it is to talk about the reality of judgment, either for us to think about it or us to share it with others, no matter how countercultural it is for us to acknowledge that we're sinners in need of God's forgiveness and I'm not actually the centre of the universe... The gospel continues to be good news. Luke tells his readers this because it is good news, because those who hear and respond by trusting in Jesus have the promise of new life, that with real repentance comes forgiveness. John comes offering a baptism of repentance. He is the forerunner of the one who offers the true and lasting and eternal forgiveness. A new start where God's spirit is promised to dwell within us. So where does that leave us at the end of a passage like this? Do we ignore what John has to say because Jesus comes offering something better, something greater? Is this helpful just from historical context but actually doesn't apply to us in any way? Well, I want to suggest that it says a couple of really important things that we'll finish on. Firstly, uh, Luke and John reminds us as the listeners and as readers uh, that we do need a bath, that we do need a fresh start, but more specifically, we need a birth. That is, we need to be reborn. Even as he baptises people, John realises that this isn't the end, this is just the beginning of something greater, Uh, that they can come to him, that they can say sorry, that they can turn around, that they can start again, but they will always be shaped by the reality of sin in their lives. But that three years later, as Jesus rises from the dead, he offers a baptism that is different 
as he says to his disciples that you are to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, everything changes. Our baptism is not just a sign of a new start in the here and now, but through Christ that we are reborn. Instead of being a victory for us and a new start, it is a victory that points back to the person and work of Jesus. The new beginning comes from Jesus ending the reign of sin and death in our lives through his sacrifice on the cross. And so we, it's great for us to be able to celebrate moments as people come for a bath of baptism. But we do so now understanding that as a deeper meaning of rebirth through Jesus who died and rose again. And so, of course, the encouragement for us then is to continue to run the race of faith. We've been forgiven our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We no longer have to try and do stuff that I could do to earn uh, uh, forgiveness. But as I come in repentance and faith, we also have the opportunity to live our lives for God, not earning his love, but reflecting on what he has done for us. Because just as they waited patiently for the Messiah, we wait for Christ's return. We wait for the day where we'll no longer struggle with every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles. And so as we wait, we take our ordinary lives and we try and shape them around the reality of the extraordinary gospel. And that even though it feels slow at times, it is inevitable. We put our trust in Jesus, his mercy toward us is unfathomable and his kingdom promises are eternal. Uh, Let's thank him for that now in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Uh, We do thank you, Lord, uh, that you love us at our most unlovable. And so we pray, Lord, that as we put our trust in you, your spirit would be at work in us and produce fruit consistent with our repentance. We pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, our minds, our lives, and that in doing so, that you would continue to grow uh, your kingdom through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.